Dear Father, we thank you for this time of the year in which we remember the resurrection of our Lord at the time of the year in which we go further back in the scripture and we remember the Passover and how all of these events are tied together within the framework of what you have done to bring salvation to your people, to bring atonement for sin. Oh Lord, we're so thankful that we are uh, in a group, amongst a group of believers who know the truth concerning the atonement. And we don't consider, as so many do, that the atonement is unnecessary. Lord, we recognize that without the forgiveness of sin, without the shed blood of Christ, we would be hopeless. And so, Father, we pray that even as we study these events which took place so long before Christ was born, we recognize that in it there is salvation. In it there is deliverance. These are events which uh, presage the coming of the Lord and the salvation which he would bring. Lord, bless us here this morning. Minister to each of us according to our individual need. In Christ's name, amen. We're in Genesis chapter 7. I'd like to begin reading at verse 6. Genesis 7, 6. Now Noah was 600 years old when the flood of water came on the earth. Then Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him entered the ark because of the water of the flood. Of clean animals and animals that are not clean and birds and everything that creeps on the ground, there went into the ark to Noah by twos, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. And it came about after the seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open, and the floodgates of the sky were opened, and the rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Well, two weeks ago, if you can remember back that far, uh, we looked at this picture, and it's a very fascinating picture when you think about it. We noted the fact that this is a, the, the uh, change uh, of eras. It's a, mo a monumental event in the history of mankind, from the antediluvian world to the post-diluvian world. We live in a, in a different world from the world in which Adam and Eve and those that we see as the great patriarchs lived. Not only differed in the sense that uh, God wiped out the humans that existed, but probably also he wiped out animal forms that were not carried over beyond the flood. And also the topography is certainly different. A flood of such massive proportions would have changed the configuration of the surface of the planet. The study of landforms is called geomorphology, and it's the study of the shape of the earth and the various features on the earth, the mountains and the valleys and the rivers and the sand dunes and the deserts and the forests and all of these things. And certainly what we look at today is not the world that existed just before this flood broke out. It's a different world. And I think this is attested to in the rock formations, in, in the great coal beds that have been found uh, in many parts of the world. They, they attest to a world that was different from the world we find today. The fact that you find coral reefs in the Arctic indicates that the world was different at one time. Now scientists, of course, try to say, well, the surface of the planet kind of skewed around over the interior, kind of slipped around like a skin on the outside of a, uh, of a tomato that's been boiled or something. Seems a little unlikely. Seems more likely that the great change in history was brought about by this cataclysmic event. The passage emphasizes again that there were only eight people in the ark. Now it's not that uh, Moses is uh, suffering from short-term memory loss. It's that God wanted him to constantly reinforce this teaching. There were only eight in the ark. This indicates that there weren't still Australoids out on Australia or, or Hottentots in southern Africa or, or uh, Sherpas up in the Himalayas who all escaped the flood because they weren't in the area where the flood was. There were eight people on planet Earth who survived. 
Now, the last picture we looked at last time was the picture of all these animals coming to the ark. Now, we've all seen movies and, and drawings and little kids' Sunday school leaflets and all of this as to what this might have looked like. But to me, here you have a powerful testimony as to the reality of Moses preaching over all these years. The people laughed at Moses. They didn't believe that this nutty fellow knew what he was doing. He was building this, this great box out here a long ways away from any major body of water. But what could they say about this parade of animals? I mean, Noah didn't go out with his wife and, and three sons and three daughters-in-law, you know, with, with lassoes and horses and go out rounding up the animals. The animals, we're told, came to Noah. This is a bit of an unusual phenomenon. <laughs> now, it's true the lemmings every once in a while make a mad rush and all drown themselves in the sea. And uh, the butterflies fly at certain times and the swallows return to Capistrano and a lot of things like this that we know about. But for anim animals of thousands of different species to come to one given spot for reasons that they don't know, herded probably by invisible angels as they came, in pairs no less, you, might, you imagine them marching up the ramp into the ark in pairs, <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Zebra and Mr. and Mrs. Giraffe and Mr. and Mrs. Slug and whatever else was, was coming up the ramp, you know. The other people around must have noticed this. It's a bit strange. You know, when Barnum and Bailey came to town, people always gathered, right? Or can we remember that far back <laughs> in time? Uh, they, to see these animals parading into this ark of their own accord would have been a powerful testimony that something about what Noah said must have been true. And yet, as, as I emphasized at the very end of class last time, the eye which is blind cannot see. The heart which is hardened cannot receive the truth. The words fell on stony ground, as Jesus would say in the parable. And, and the people, although they saw it, were not changed. I don't remember if I, if I referred to this last time, but every, every time I look at something like this, it brings back to me the vision of what Jesus gave in, in that parable in Luke of the rich man and Lazarus. Remember that one? And the, the, the Lazarus laid at the rich man's door and, and he ate the crumbs and whatever was thrown his way and, and they both died and the rich man was, was in hell, Hades, uh, and, and the uh, Lazarus, the poor man, was in Abraham's bosom. And of course, we talk, it talks about the gulf in between and, and that's not the point that I want to make. The point is that he said, the, the rich man said to Abraham, let me go back and tell my brothers so they don't come to this place. And Jesus' point in that parable is so powerful. Even if you were to return alive to tell your brothers, they won't believe because if they don't believe Moses and the prophet, they won't believe if you come back from the dead. You see, the miracle is not going to change the heart. That's why, personally, I feel that if they ever were to find Noah's Ark up on Mount Ararat, that probably, to us, it would be exciting, but to the vast majority of the world whose eyes are blind and hearts are hard, it's not going to make any difference. They'll find another excuse not to believe. We need to pray that that hardness is softened and the eyes are open of the blind and the hard-hearted. That's the only way. It's the Spirit of God who brings life, not miracles, not visions, uh, nothing. And the Spirit of God uses the Word of God. That's why the Word of God is so important. They, have de they had deliberately rejected Noah's Word over and over and over again. And so even though they saw this parade of animals, which they had never seen in their lives before, probably animals they had never seen in their lives before, it didn't change them. They didn't say, well, maybe this crazy Noah has something to what he's saying here. Something unusual is happening. You'd think there would be a few people to hedge their bets who'd say, let's just kind of get in the ark just to be sure. Now, they didn't want to be labeled as accepting the words of crazy Noah. We're told that it took seven days to load the ark. Seven days for these eight people inside the ark to kind of guide the animals where they should stay. You know, this is your uh, penthouse and this is your bungalow and 
uh, you know, putting the animals in their various little cubicles inside the ark and letting them bed down must have been <laughs> pretty exciting. Having probably had no experience as zookeepers, this was a bit of a stretching experience. Now what's interesting is in this particular passage we read the exact date of the coming of the flood. We're told in the passage that it came on the 17th day of the second month of the 600th year of the life of Noah. Now if there was any way we could plug Noah in to our calendar, we'd know exactly when the flood came upon the earth. Now some commentators look at this and they say, well, probably because Moses was writing this at a later date, that what he is saying here is that this refers to the ceremonial calendar used by the Jews. And therefore, the 17th day of the second month would have been April. And so the great flood came in April. Other commentators say, no, 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 he probably was talking about the political calendar. And the political calendar has the second month as October. So it came in October. But, you know, you look at this passage and what does it tell you? It says the 17th day of the second month of what? Of the 600th year since creation? Of the 600th year since, uh, you know, uh, whoever? No, of the 600th year of Noah's life. I don't think it has anything to do with the ceremonial calendar or anything to do with the political calendar. It only is talking about the 600th year of the life of Noah. And since we can't plug Noah into a specific calendar, we don't really know exactly, of course, even approximately, when the flood occurred. Now, if you have an old Schofield reference Bible, it'll give you a date. But just don't hang your hat on the date, or your life especially. Uh, just remember that everything that's uh, in the margin, at the bottom, in the middle, that's all not inspired, not at least by the Holy Spirit. That's somebody's own interpretation and estimation of what took place, when it took place. The point here is not that we should be able to pinpoint the exact date in which the flood came according to a particular calendar. The point is to emphasize the fact that this was a real event that actually happened in human history on the 17th day of the 20 of the second month of the 600th year of this man's life what is telling us is that we're not looking at a legend we're not looking at a myth now later on not today but on a different day I'm going to refer to certain legends and myths that do uh, exist around the world relative to this flood and there are hundreds of them Almost every people in the world has a legend of a great flood, which seems a little unusual for something that may have been totally mythological in some people's thinking. So what we're looking at is a very, very important point, and that is that we dare not mythologize Scripture. Because as soon as we start mythologizing scripture and saying, well, you know, this probably didn't really happen. It's just kind of a nice story to illustrate a point of some sort. As soon as we do that, we begin to remove the urgency and the imperative of understanding and obeying the gospel. Now, let me, let me bring it to the New Testament. Notice as, as we turn to Matthew chapter 24 for a second. As, as we look at this passage, you'll have to notice how pointless and non-compelling Jesus' words become if we consider the whole flood of Noah simply a story and not a reality. If we think of it as just something to sort of give the ancient people or the people of, Noah's, of, of Moses', Moses Day uh, a, a way to, to see how the world could have changed, maybe, then Jesus' words don't, don't make much sense here. Verse 36, we've, we've read this passage before. But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father of alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah, 
For as in those days which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Now there's no point in making an analogy between something that didn't happen and something that you're saying is going to happen. If Jesus is really teaching that he's coming again, and I think we all believe that, then we have to, by extension, believe that he actually believed there was a flood and there was a real Noah. Now, if we can't trust Jesus' words here, where can we trust Jesus' words? If Jesus didn't know that there was no Noah, if he didn't know that there actually wasn't a flood, but thought there was one, then how can we trust any of Jesus' words? Sure, he was human, but he's God omnipotent, God omniscient, filled with the Holy Spirit. And if we believe Jesus taught things that he just thought were so, but didn't know were so, then, then we could go through the whole gospel and say, well, he just thought that was so. He wasn't really the Messiah. He wasn't really the Son of God. And of course, many of the Jews felt that way. To me, as I thought about this, this came to my mind. Who are we to pass judgment on the Word of God? This is not on your outline, but let me read a, a verse to you from John chapter 20. Last two verses in chapter 20 of the Gospel of John. Verse 30. Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written. Why? That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Why is this written? So that we can analyze it, criticize it, run it through form criticism, textual criticism, or so that we can believe. Jesus in another place, after Thomas finally was able to put his hand in his side and his finger in his hand, Jesus said, you believe because you have seen, but blessed are those who having not seen yet believe. And that's us. You and I have not seen the literal Jesus. And yet we believe. These are written that we might believe, not pass judgment on the validity of the Word of God, particularly when our judgment is based upon our pseudo-intellectual arrogance. You'll discover that many of those who are the greatest critics of the Bible are those who think most highly of themselves. The Bertrand Russells of the world. The people who think that they're akin to God in their great brilliance. But the people of true humility are the people who believe, not because they're gullible, not because they're stupid, but because they're wise. There's a great difference between intelligence and wisdom. A person can have a lot of wisdom and not a lot of intelligence. A person can have a lot of intelligence and not much wisdom. We're told to be wise. What did Jesus say? You know, we're to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. He didn't say become as intelligent as, uh, well, whatever you can think of, Einstein. Going back to the 7th chapter of Genesis. The last part of verse 11 of Genesis 7 on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open, and the floodgates of the sky were opened. This is a key. This is a key to understanding what happened here. Now, the Hebrew word for fountain refers to a natural spring bursting forth from the hillside. The word for deep it's the same word that is used in the second verse of the first chapter of Genesis where it says, And darkness was over the surface of the deep. The deep means the great ocean, the great abyss under the sea. So what we have here 
is a reference to what apparently were great subterranean reservoirs that suddenly broke their boundaries and gushed forth across the planet and even under the seas. Now we can only speculate as to the actual details of what happened here at this particular moment. But as you remember when we went back and, and we were studying about the garden that was in the land of Eden and how the, it, it says that there was a dew, a kind of a mist that watered the garden and there, there were rivers that sort of seemed to come up and then distribute themselves as from a single river into four. And it's very possible that these great underground reservoirs formed a circulatory system of some sort where water surfaced in a spring and then ran down and, and disappeared back into the ground again. A kind of a system that God would have established to water the earth. It would seem that the great hydrologic cycle that we know wasn't in place yet the great cyclonic storms forming over, you know, up in the Alaskan high or, or down in the Hawaiian area and, and then moving in across the land masses, bringing the masses of water that have been evaporated from the oceans and dumping it on the land. Doesn't seem to have been in place yet for reasons that we'll talk about in a minute. It's very possible and... and sort of appropriate for the moment, that a great massive earthquake worldwide shook the planet and cracked open these reservoirs and the water gushed forth, possibly under heat from, from the interior of the planet, heated thus that it was, it was, they were pressurized conduits. And the water just poured forth in great quantities across the earth. I think along with this, you will find that it's very logical to believe that there was continental subsidence. Now, I've taken courses in, uh, in geology, and I spent a whole semester in, in one particular course which had nothing to do except with the geology of this continent here, North America. And we spent the whole time <coughs> studying how this continent went up and down, up and down, up and down, you know, through history. And how do we know that? Well, we go to the Grand Canyon and we see all these layers here and we say, well, this was a time of deposition, this was a time of erosion, this was a time of deposition. And every time of deposition, you had to have the ocean come back in, right, to deposit the material. And then the continent had to come back up for the erosion to take place, and then it had to sink again for the next deposition. It's sort of like the continents are on pistons. They kind of go up and they go down, and they go up and they go down. <laughs> of course, it takes hundreds of millions and even billions of years for this to take place. It's a nice story. The problem of it is nobody was there to see it happen. And it's just a way to try to explain what we see. And, and that's fine. You know, that's what science is all about. Try to explain what you see. Seems a lot easier to see that, yes, the continents may have subsided, the continents may have become depressed at this time, especially if the reservoirs were gushing out the water and, and the land, therefore, on top of them was collapsing into the reservoirs. I mean, we've had this happen. You go down to the west side of the Central Valley of California where they've been pumping water for several decades now, and you've got many places where the subsidence is 10, 20, 30, 40 feet, or the ground is sunk because the water extracted, not out of reservoirs, but right out of the rock underneath the valley. You can understand what would happen. Remember uh, down in, uh, I guess it was Louisiana, where that uh, lake went down inside that salt dome? Some guy was out there drilling for oil in the middle of the lake, and he drilled through the top of a salt dome that had been mined, <laughs> and the whole lake just went right down like a giant sink, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, literally, it washed out all the piers and boats were going around like this, you know. Well, you can imagine that on a worldwide scale. What would happen as the subsidence occurred and the seas flowed across the land? Along with this earth upheaval probably would have been massive volcanism. Now, did volcanism exist before the flood? Well, we don't know. If we go by the theory of uniformitarianism, we'll say, yeah, well, everything's been happening at the same rate it's happening now for all, all time. 
Now, even geologists are getting away from that a little because they're finding there were some times when cataclysmic events occurred, but they don't dare use that word because if you use the word cataclysm, then you possibly allow for something like the Noahic flood, flood to have happened, and you don't want to do that. So you just kind of make it uh, punctuated equilibrium or something uh, of this nature. If, if, if volcanism were to suddenly occur, occur on, on a massive scale this time, it would have thrown a tremendous amount of steam into the atmosphere and a lot of particles. And those particles, of course, would have become nuclei upon which water vapor would condense to help perform what we read about here in the scripture as the floodgates of the sky being opened. Now, the word translated floodgates, depending on which translation you have, will be translated windows, sluices. Uh, obviously, the word is translated in a metaphorical way. There aren't really literally a window, isn't a window up there through which water started to pour uh, out of heaven. Uh, because the exact same word is used in that verse that you hear used so many times, particularly when it's uh, time to make your pledge. Malachi 3.10, let me just read the verse to you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me and see this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. The exact same word as in Genesis, the windows of heaven. It's got to be metaphorical because out of one window you get dumped a flood and the other window you get dumped a flood of blessing. I mean, it's, it's a picture. It's not a literal window in heaven. What it means is there became, uh, there, there came into existence a massive cloud burst. Literally, the skies were rended and down came a cloudburst of such magnitude as never had been seen before and has never been seen since. Today, such a cloudburst would be literally impossible, physically impossible. It couldn't happen. There is no way that the skies could pour forth 40 days and 40 nights in a torrential rain around this entire planet. It's not possible. All of the water today that is found in our atmosphere constitutes one thousandth of one percent of the water on planet Earth. One thousandth of one percent. Now where is most of the water today on planet Earth? Right, in the ocean, right? <laughs> the oceans contain 330 million cubic miles, estimated obviously, of water. Three hundred and thirty million cubic miles. How much water is a cubic mile? <laughs> the Great Lakes system, the five Great Lakes combined, Matthew, Mark, no, <laughs> Superior, Huron, <laughs> Michigan, Ontario, and Erie, those five Great Lakes together have 6,000 cubic miles of water. Lake Baikal, in Siberia alone has 6,000 cubic miles of water in it. Although in surface area, it's smaller than either Superior, Michigan, or Huron. But it is more than a mile deep. 5,300 feet deep. How would you like to go scuba diving? <laughs> they say the water is very, very clear, though, and cold. The ice of the world today has locked up about six million cubic miles of water. It's estimated that in the ground is another two million cubic miles of water. That on the surface of the ground in the lakes and the rivers is approximately 56,000 cubic miles and in the atmosphere just 3,300 cubic miles of water. One thousandth of one percent of the water on the planet is locked in the atmosphere. Now, if we were somehow to be able to precipitate all of the water in the atmosphere at one moment across the surface of the earth, the surface of the earth would be covered between one and two inches deep. Hard time floating in an ark 
unless it's very, very small, in, in that much water. So obviously, we're not talking about the flood being generated by this torrential rain. That was simply a little add-on, if you will. Conditions were apparently somewhat different from the, what they are now in the days of Noah. Let me go back just a moment to the first chapter of Genesis and look at verses 6 and 7. Now again, this is a not, not a real easy picture to understand, but we, we talked about it. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. So there were waters above the sky or in the sky, and there was water below the sky, which, of course, formed the oceans of the world. Now, the oceans of the world at that time may have been much smaller in terms of area than they are today. You wouldn't need the vast quantities of oceans in those days if there were some sort of a pressurized uh, underground conduit system that God had established to, to water the parts of the earth that needed water. If, they were, if you're not dependent on the hydrologic cycle, you don't need vast oceans. Some have argued, why did God make the earth the way it is? with only 29% land area and 71% ocean. Why didn't he make a lot more land for people? Well, of course, the answer is quite clear, that the way things operate today, if we didn't have that vast ocean, we'd be drier than we are now. It's the ocean that generates the rain and the snow, and without the ocean, we would have much, much less. Well, without the ocean, we wouldn't have any. <laughs> but if you reduce the ocean, you reduce the amount of precipitation. Now, when we studied the first chapter of Genesis, I made reference to the possibility of their, of their existing in the air and that this, this um, waters above the heavens were a great water vapor canopy of some sort. Now, we have a water vapor canopy right now. It just doesn't have much water in it. But the water vapor canopy that existed then would have had hundreds and hundreds of times more water in it than, than is found up there now. Now such a canopy would have increased atmospheric pressure. Instead of being 15 pounds per square inch at sea level, it might have been 30 or 45 pounds per square inch, whatever. And uh, as I can't remember if I mentioned in this class before or not, but I've read studies where they say when you subject uh, even people, to increase pressure that people seem to live uh, more healthy lives. Now, I don't mean stress, but I mean air pressure increases. That if we were to live under more air pressure, we would live healthier. Now, you see this to some extent with the fact that as you go from here, and if you were to go up to live in Denver, you find it's a little more stressful to live in Denver because the atmospheric pressure is less, the oxygen content is less. You go up and move to a place like La Paz, Bolivia, where the upper levels of the city are 11,000 feet above sea level, 12,000 feet above sea level. You find life there very, very interesting. The very poor live up there. The rich live very much further down. When we landed in the, at the airfield at La Paz, which is at 13,000 feet above sea level, and you went through uh, customs, there were people who had just flown in from Miami, and they were holding on to the counter, trying to make it through, you know. <laughs> 13,000 feet above sea level really impacts you if you've come straight from sea level. And people cannot survive above 18,000 feet on an ongoing basis. You can't live above 18,000 feet. So that, in a way, in sort of a negative way, uh, infers the fact that a heavier, greater pressure would be actually better. And that's the way it may have been. Also, the, the vast water vapor canopy would have filtered out more of the harmful radiation that we experience today. We're finding out, aren't we, all the time about how harmful it is to actually get out in front of that great nuclear reactor and lay in the light of it, you know? <laughs> how many people are going to go over in front of Three Mile Island and just bathe in the radiation, you know? 
But that's what we're doing when we go out and lay in the sun. You know, it's a lot worse. This also would have produced more even atmospheric temperatures worldwide. As long as the water remained in a vapor form, it would have been basically transparent. The sun would have been visible, the stars would have been visible at night, but the water vapor could have been there and apparently certainly was there. This could also explain why the rain may not have fallen before the 600th year of Noah's life. This plant may not have experienced the phenomenon we call rainfall prior to this time. And that's easy to explain when you think about this greenhouse effect that such a water vapor canopy would have created. If you have this big, sort of like a solar blanket wrapped around the earth, a, a transparent sol solar blanket, it would maintain temperatures evenly around the whole planet. You wouldn't have frozen poles and equatorial heat. You would have basic temperature, uh, temperatures pretty much the same all the way around the world. And of course, if that happens, if you have uniform temperatures, generally speaking, you're going to have almost no difference in barometric pressure. And it's differences in barometric pressure that create the winds and the storms from the highs to the lows. Well, the lows, yes, the highs to the lows. Uh, and if you don't have highs and lows, you're not going to have storms. You're not going to generate rainfall orographically, which means by shoving it up over a mountaintop. You're, you're not going to uh, <clears throat> generate it cyclonically, which means the, the great, that's how we have our rainfall here, the great lows which come in from the Alaskan Gulf. And also, at the same time, if the temperatures are even, you're not going to have convectional precipitation either. You're not going to have air masses rising from the sea to the upper levels where they cool to the dew point and produce rain. And this happens all the time. That's why you have such torrential rains in much of the equatorial zone. You wouldn't have that. So rainfall would probably not occur simply because of the existence of such a blanket around the planet. So why would it change? It would change because it was an act of the Almighty. You know, there's no way as we read through the Bible that we can get away from the miraculous. We, we have people all the time who want to take this book and, and, and try to bring it down to everyday uh, lives that we understand and, and they are unwilling to allow the miraculous, to allow God be God. If God could come in the flesh and become our Savior, certainly he could say, water, vapor, precipitate. And it's going to do it. We don't have to figure out some kind of a rational way to explain it. God simply did it. And so it precipitated for nearly six weeks, there was a torrential downpour planet-wide as this great canopy collapsed. Now think about it for a minute. However, if it even rained at the mind-boggling rate of four inches per hour, which would be eight feet in one day, which is more than double we, what we receive here in a whole year, if it were to rain at that rate, at the end of... Four we, uh, 40 days, what would we have? 320 feet of water. That's not going to co cover very many mountains. It just barely co covers some of the tall buildings. That's why I say that the great floodwaters that came across the planet were not primarily the result of the rainfall but of the bursting forth of the great fountains of the deep. Yeah. Did they have mountains? Maybe they mountains then. Well, it says the ark landed on the mountains of Ararat. Right. So maybe the mountains occurred during the upheaval oh, and all of that. That's possible. Seems a little unlikely, though, the plant would have been totally flat. Well. Would have been boring. Skiing. Yeah, where, <laughs> where to go skiing? Yeah, that would be hard. hard. But, there were, but there were all kinds of plants and everything else. Yeah. We don't know, of course, what the surface configuration was before the flood. Uh, 
the fact that it says that the ark rose to, to float up above the mountain seems to indicate whether the mountains all of a sudden rose up at the very moment of the flood or not, that at least there probably were mountains in existence before the flood. Look at verse, let's, let's look at verse 13. Genesis 7, verse 13. On the same day Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. And they and every beast after its kind and all the cattle after their kind and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind and every bird after its kind, all sorts of birds. So they went into the ark to Noah by twos of all flesh in which was the breath of life. And those which entered, male and female, of all flesh, entered as God had commanded him. And the Lord closed it behind him. Then the flood came on the earth for 40 days, and water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. This passage summarizes all that's transpired up to this point. We read for the fourth time the great mass of animals that was on the ark. God wanted us to know that those animals were really there on a real ark. Now that may not seem like a point that needs to be made to you, but you have to realize that the vast majority of people who call themselves Christians in this country today don't believe that to be true. They don't take the Bible literally in most of its teaching. They claim that it is not the Word of God, but somewhere in it you can find the Word of God. But what is the Word of God is what God is saying to you and to you, which makes it totally personal in the sense that, well, what God says to me, you can't deny it because he said it to me. And if it's what he says to you is different, that's okay. We all get to heaven as long as we believe in something. God says this over and over again. Why does God say this over and over again? To reinforce the magnitude of what is happening and the totality of the destruction. This was not a little flood flowing down the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, uh, wiping out a few villages and carrying away a few cows. It's totally absurd to think that way within the context of what is described here. At the climatic moment, the human passengers are again specifically identified. Shem, Ham, Japheth, Noah, and their wives specifically stated that these eight are in the ark of safety. What this passage implies is that God kept Noah's family faithful to the task. You and I are familiar with peer pressure, right? Enough people are doing one thing, we do it too, because we don't want to be the oddball. It's like the cartoon you've seen, maybe, I've seen at least. It's a picture of penguins. And every penguin is facing the same way on their, in their rookery, except one penguin is turned around. Or, or the picture of the audience watching a movie, and all you see the faces of the people in the movie, and everybody's crying except one man, he's laughing. No. Pure pressure. But there are some oddballs, of course, who... <laughs> and, and that's the way it could have been that his family viewed Noah. He was the man grinning in the theater of crying people. It was the oddball. The whole world was against them. Can you imagine? I mean, just think about it for a minute. Do you think that nobody took Shem, Ham, or Japheth aside and said, look, um, we all recognize your dad's a little loco here, but you don't want to get caught up in this, do you? And we got a good job in a carpentry shop down here for you. Uh, these things, you have to think that this kind of thing happened. What did they have to lean on? Simply Noah's proclamation of the, what he said was the word of God. Noah saw God, God gave him the word, he told it to others. 
Do you know how long it took Muhammad to convince people that he really saw God? It took him quite a while. At first, only a very few close family members and friends believed that Muhammad was anything but a nut. Others thought, ha, you've seen a, God, a vision of God, sure. Noah's sons and daughters-in-law could have easily abandoned the project. What did Job's wife say to Job? Why don't you just curse God and die? Why should you hang on in the face of all this that's against you? Noah's family could have said the same thing. Noah, you may have seen God and, and you may have seen this, but hey, you know, everybody's laughing us to scorn. We can't handle this or we're going to go off and live in the town and you know, we'll come out and see you on weekends or something. No? Why did they hang in there? In the face of the fact that everybody said this is the, the, the building of the ark is the wild scheming of somebody with a Messiah complex. Why did they hang in there? Because God was faithful. And God caused them to continue to believe. We sing this quite often in church. Right out of the end of the little epistle of Luke, uh, of Jude. Let me just read those verse, two verses again. Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, and to the only God our Father, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority, both before all time, now, and forever. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to keep you from falling. See, it is God who keeps us on the way. You and I may have committed ourselves to Jesus Christ and asked the Spirit of God to indwell us, but that doesn't mean that we are able to keep ourselves from stumbling. He is able to keep us from stumbling. It's by His strength that we walk in the way. Not by might nor by power, says Zechariah, but by my spirit, says the Lord, in through the prophet Zechariah. God kept these seven true to the task in the face of it all. They hadn't seen the vision. They hadn't heard the word of God except through Noah. But they believed. You see, God gave them belief. God gave them faith. God enabled them to stick with it. I believe there's a day coming when that may be applicable to us. It's looking more and more like that all the time in our own society, in which for us to stand up for Jesus Christ is going to take his strength within us because everybody's going to laugh us to scorn. I mean, our, quote, Christian society has gone so far from what is Christian. Oh, sure, people still today say, yeah, I believe in God and... and uh, you know, even about this, uh, Dr. Bullock and I were talking about this yesterday, and you were right. Uh, the uh, number of people who believe that God uh, created the world 10,000 years ago, or created man at least, within the last 10,000 10, years, it's fairly high amongst, amongst evangelicals, but in other groups it's not. And even a lot of evangelicals, I think it was 25%, wasn't it, uh, believe that uh, God simply guided the evolution of the human race. Quote evangelicals. Now to me an evangelical is somebody who believes that this is the divinely inspired word of God literally to be believed. But when we, when we decide that science has uh, so much weight on its side that we, you know, we feel uncomfortable, then we start a skew over here. We find ourselves pretty soon high and dry because science moves. Now here one moment, then it's over here, and then it's up here because they make new discoveries. The Big Bang, right? Supposedly now the fact that they found some aberrations out there uh, in, in radiation that uh, really the Big Bang must have happened. It was beginning to lose uh, credibility for, uh, there for a while. But now it's uh, proving that God really probably created it, but you know, billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of years ago, 15 billion maybe years ago. We don't know all those details. But if we accept the Word of God the way it comes to us, not foolishly, 
but with faith. These are written that we might believe. Then we don't have to be intimidated by some Big Bang theory, some rocket that goes up there and measures a few aberrations in radiation and says, ah, proves the Big Bang or something of that nature. What, what, what does that, how does that impact us? Scripture says that we're not to be driven about by every wind of doctrine, you know, like seaweed waving in the waves, back and forth, flopping back and forth. We're to know whom we have believed. And that's a part of understanding what he says here. Who shut the door of the ark? It says God did. God closed that great door. Wouldn't that have been fun to watch <laughs> in the door? The door is coming up, you know. No, uh, they may not have even thought of a way to raise the door. Uh, probably we have to assume they did. But you know, no, no button to push, you know, like an automatic door opener <laughs> or a door closer. This big door comes up and closes and seals the ark. By this act, God did two things. He sealed the security of the eight inside the ark, and he sealed the doom of the millions outside the ark. When that door shut, my spirit will not always strive with men. And that was the moment at which there was no more any hope. Judgment of God fell. And those millions perished because they did not believe the word of God. The great door slammed shut and the torrents began to pour out of the heavens. And Noah and his family, what were their feelings inside the ark? Well, I think as the, 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 the what, pitter-patter of little raindrops on the roof, no. As the great torrents poured forth from the sky, I think first of all there was joy. They were in the ark of safety. They had believed God and God had accounted it that, to them as righteousness and they were saved. They were protected. They experienced the salvation of God there inside the ark. The faithfulness that they had maintained by God's strength paid enormous dividends. All their pain and suffering paled into insignificance by the greatness of God's deliverance. And when I was studying that, it just brought, I've, this, this passage has come to mind many times, but it came to mind again as I was studying this. First, second Corinthians 4. Whenever we start thinking, oh, it's just too hard. The Christian life's too tough. I can't, I can't do it. I'm not going to be able to hang in there to the end. God just called upon us to do something too tough. Remind ourselves of these verses. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying. And of course we witness that when we look in the mirror, don't we? <laughs> Yet our inner man is being renewed every day, day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Our temporary light affliction is of no comparison to the eternal weight of glory. The same sense that they must have felt there in the ark. All that pain and all that suffering, all the taunting they bore, all the accusation that they were following a lunatic, it meant nothing anymore because they experienced the deliverance of God. They were saved. And all the world out there, and this, of course, didn't give them joy because outside the ark were cousins and uncles and aunts and who knows what else? To the wives of Noah's three sons, probably brothers and sisters, parents, out there, going to be destroyed, eternally wiped off the planet. 
For 40 days, the torrential rains fell, and vast quantities of water came from the reservoirs of the deep. The water level rose steadily. I don't think it rose placidly. I think it rose violently. I think there was tremendous storms associated with this. And the wind whipped with hurricane velocity and the waves became 10, 20 feet high as it swept in across the land. People didn't just keep going like this up the hillside as the water rose, you know. I think they were running like mad as the great waves were crashing in across their cities and towns. The rivers rose tremendously. Ever watched one of those movies? You probably have that I think Disney puts it out and it shows the rain starts to fall and the rain falls heavier and it shows the water starting to flow through a desert area. Do you know what is the leading cause of death in the desert? I was asked this in, in my geography class and nobody ever gets it, but I'm sure you being far more mature and understanding. <laughs> drowning. The leading cause of death in the desert is drowning. And the reason is people camp in the dumb wadis, in the arroyos, to get out of the wind and, the, you know, and to be protected from the cold wind across there, they sleep down in the bottom of the canyon. And when a cloudburst comes, of course, the water comes down the canyon 20 feet tall. Remember when that happened not too many years ago and it almost took out uh, Bill Bright's wife and a bunch of women who were at some conference? They barely, driving down the highway, probably not abiding by the speed limit as this wall of water was coming after them. Did the people run to the ark on the outside? No, in, in the movies they always show people up there pounding on the ark. Did they do that? Were the people out there pounding on the ark trying to get in? Or were they scrambling up the nearest tree or up the nearest hill, if there were any hills? <laughs> Running from the rising water. I don't know. Some of the paintings I've seen are pretty grotesque. People clinging to everything and like a bunch of ants everywhere, trying to avoid drowning. Even those that had been on the swim team wouldn't last much longer than everybody else. Did Noah and his family in the ark hear the cries of those outside? Or did the roar of the rain and the noise of the animals inside drown out any possibility of hearing what was going on outside? Did they go up there and look and watch? Probably not. The torrential downpour, I mean, it was coming in literal buckets full. Probably with all the busy work that they had to do inside kept them from from really witnessing what was going on outside. And that would be, of course, to their advantage. It would be heart-rendering to watch all these people screaming and crying and running and drowning. The cataclysmic events occurring outside the ark, I think, created a condition where when the ark finally floated, it didn't just lift like a little bark on the water. I think it lifted and began to rock and shake and and move around as the waves came and the wind blew and the ark was buffeted. As we talked about earlier, the design of the ark was such to make it as stable as possibly could be. <laughs> One of the, I think it's the Sumerian uh, flood epic, has the ark made out of, made cube-shaped. Can you imagine a cube-shaped ark? I mean, the crazy thing would float this way and it would roll over this way and I mean, <laughs> be tough keeping the animals all upright inside. But can you imagine something? These people weren't sailors. And neither were the animals. And so as this thing was going up and down and back and forth like this, <laughs> it probably got a little queasy. I guess we can't leave them like that, can we? We have to stop. But let's just look at the next few verses that we'll be looking at next week specifically. Verse 18. And the water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. And the water prevailed more and more on the earth, so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher, and the mountains were covered. And all flesh that moved on the earth perished, birds and cattle and beasts,
and every swarming thing that swarmed on the earth and all mankind, of all that was on the dry land, in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, died. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was on the surface of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky, and they were blotted out from the earth, and only Noah was left together with those that were with him in the ark. And the water prevailed on the earth 150 days. Next week we'll look at what it means to prevail on the earth and the events which transpired after that.